You're listening to Knowing Faith, a podcast of training the church. This is Kyle Worley. I'm joined by my co-hosts, Jen Wilkin and JT English. What's up? This is it. This is the very last one. The very last one. (laughs) We don't do this again until August. It's kind of, it's kind of like life-giving and kind of life-sucking. I love it and I hate it. (laughs) It's true. Um, Today, I love that it's our last one because we have spent a lot. I love you both. I love you too. But we have spent the whole day together and, uh, I am I'm eager to see you again at a future point that is not today. <laughs> um, uh, hey, Patreon folks, let me if you're if you're listening to this, uh, you, uh, you're probably a patron supporter or this episode has released in July uh, and the Patreon supporters got this two months ago. Uh, and so let me just se- tell our Patreon supporters. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I really mean this. Um, your support of knowing faith is allowing us to do some really cool things. It's allowing us to start a new podcast. Um, it's allowing us to produce this content in a way that's going out to not a joke. I mean this hundreds of thousands of people every month. And this podcast would not be sustainable apart from your support. I mean, that's just the way it is. Uh, And so I just want to tell you, thank you. I am incredibly honored that you would uh, pray for us, that you would support uh, uh, Knowing Faith through Patreon. And so I hope you've enjoyed it. We certainly enjoy getting to interact with you. And we're just so grateful um, for your partnership uh, in this podcast. When we launched out, when we um, left the village, uh, and launched out on our own, we really didn't know what to expect. Um, we, there was a lot of uncertainty on whether or not the podcast would be sustainable. Could Knowing Faith continue? Could we continue to offer high-quality episodes every week and bring in great guests? And I mean, we just didn't know. Um, we certainly wanted to, and that's we were motivated to do so. But I have to tell you, apart from the support of the Knowing Faith Patreon community, it just wouldn't be possible. And so I, we just want to say thank you. Mm-hmm. Uh, thank you for supporting us. And uh, we hope that the podcast continues to be a blessing to you in the days ahead. And two big announcements before we jump into the questions. I promise you, you would know this before anybody else did. And so we've announced them in our Q&A episode, but you're going to hear this before they are, uh, before they will. So here you go. we got two <laughs> big announcements. Jen, why don't you tell the patrons, what are we studying next year on the Knowing Faith podcast series? It's the Book of Romans. We're studying the, the Book, Book of, Romans. of Romans. Wow. So exciting. I'm just glad that it's not, you know, Third Chronicles or something. Yeah. Um, glad to be out of the Old Testament for a little while. Um, and, don't bag uh, on the Old Testament. I know, I know. I just am glad I'm not in the same room with you so I don't get <laughs> popped for it. But I just would say I'm very delighted that we're going to be in Romans. It'll be a lot of fun. I'm preaching through Romans right now. Jen is going to be teaching through Romans when when they get th- when we get there in the mm-hmm. fall. And we're trying to convince JT to go ahead and pull the trigger and commit to preaching through Romans as well. So I kind of feel like I have to now. The, the pressure is mounting. There's a a lot of social pressure. All Mm -hmm. the cool kids. Mm -hmm. Uh, And we also have another announcement for you. I've been teasing this and teasing this and teasing this, but I want to tell you, I want you guys to be the first to know, we are launching a second podcast for Training the Church, which is the organization that stands behind Knowing Faith as a podcast. And that podcast is called the Family Discipleship Podcast. It's going to be hosted by Adam Griffin. He's got some incredible guests and some co-hosts that will be joining him on that show in its first season, which will launch this fall, starting in August. And we could not be more thrilled about it. Adam co-wrote a book with Matt Chandler on the topic of family discipleship and a book by that same title. Uh, 
the foreword was written by somebody you might be familiar Some with. Some person. Jane I'm a Watkins. big, I'm a big fan of Adam Griffin, big Adam me, Griffin fan. Me too. Me too. Yeah. He's, he has given a lot of time and attention to thinking through issues of family discipleship. And I promise you, um, it's gonna be a good podcast. Mm-hmm. It is, um, it really is. If you've not read the book, the book is really good. Uh, and this podcast is gonna explore in a kind of a deeper way some of the issues explored in the book. And then they're gonna get to explore issues that they just didn't have the time or the space to cover within the context of the book. And so I'm very excited about it. And I wanted you guys to be the first to know, apart from your generous support, things like launching new podcasts would not be possible. And so thank you, thank you, thank you. We're gonna jump into your questions. I think think we've got all of them today and we're going to move pretty quick. Um, and so uh, that's not because we don't love each one of your questions. They're not, each one of your questions is fearfully and wonderfully precious. asked. Precious They're in fearfully the and the wonderfully asked. Yes, precious in the sight <laughs> of the Lord. But there's a lot of them uh, and we wanted to get through as many of them as possible. So we're going to jump in. Bethany asks, I've been studying the book of Proverbs and have been considering this question. In times where wisdom is personified, is it fair to read that as if Christ himself is speaking or being described since he is the perfect embodiment of the wisdom of God? It seems the most obvious in chapters 1, 8, and 9. Are there any misinterpretations possible in seeing those passages purely as words of Christ? Thanks. Bethany. Bethany, Bethany. Okay, so I just finished studying Proverbs. And Bethany, you're doing so great. If Christ is the wisdom of God, then we can certainly read those things as being true of him, describing him or being words that would come from him. I know people can get a little weird about it because it's lady wisdom and they're like, oh, I don't know how that works. And even when you get to Proverbs 31, if you did our Proverbs study, you know that, spoiler alert, we believe that the Proverbs 31 woman is actually Lady Wisdom, who we are supposed to marry, Um, then it can be weird. It's like, well, wait, if Lady Wisdom is who we marry, then how can Lady Wisdom also be Christ? But if we are to be conformed to the image of Christ, then a metaphor for being conformed to the image of Christ would be to marry ourselves to wisdom itself. Boom. Fantastic. Bethany. (laughs) And her mug. Bethany, uh, take what Jen just did there and make it your ringtone. Because that would be a great... <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, Jen, I don't think I've ever heard you do that for anybody else. Bethany's like a mm-hmm. star right now. <laughs> wow. Way to go, Bethany. Haven't done it for you guys, uh, have I? No, I, I don't remember it. <laughs> uh, Alyssa, is some sort of ministry or biblical studies degree important, helpful for leaders in the local church? JT, uh, they, she's asking, aside from the pastor, is some sort of ministry or biblical studies degree important for leaders in a local church? Yeah, I think it's hugely important. I mean, we we don't partner with seminaries for any other reason other than to, to suggest that we think high-level theological education is important for lots of people in the life of the church. And that doesn't just mean vocational pastors or even vocational ministers. It could just mean lay people who want to grow in their knowledge of the Bible. Seminaries have great degree certificates for 20, 30, 40 hours that you can do online. Like uh, if you have some time and uh, some uh, expendable cash, then yeah, I think you should, I think you should do this. Now, seminary is not for everybody and it's not, uh, for everybody just given competency or everybody given capacity of life. If you've got, you know, two jobs and kids running around and, and you're going to have to meet neglectful of more important things then no seminary is not, not right for you. And you should seek out opportunities in the life of your local church primarily to learn and to grow in your understanding of God through the scriptures, but seminary is a great option for a lot of people and it's becoming increasingly accessible and affordable. Yeah, I've never ever once regretted having the seminary training that I have. Yeah. Not once. But, but let's just, I, oh. sorry, I just want to say one last thing because I know there's a lot of people who are like, I would love to do that, but I can't. <laughs> seminary is not essential. 
Yeah, it's not. It, it, it is great if you can, but there are lots of other ways. And Jen is a wonderful model of this for for being self taught and pursuing education in life. Yeah, but I would have loved to have had it. And I would just say that if you do receive seminary level education, it is not for you. It is for the people in your church. So make sure that you are taking what you know and making it accessible to the people who you're serving. It's good. Kelly asked, how does the book of Job fit in with the story of Genesis? Does it? I don't know that the book of Job fits in with the story of Genesis, but I will say some Old Testament scholars suggest that the book of Job is the earliest Uh book written. Uh, and it would maybe was one of the earliest stories told. So mm-hmm. I don't, I'm not making a conclusion with that. I just think that's an interesting observation. You may already know that. Maybe that's why you're asking it. But I don't know. I don't know that I've considered how the book of Job fits in with the story of Genesis. Yeah, I wonder if, she, yeah, we probably need a little more info on, on why the question is being asked. I would, I would say that it's wisdom literature. Yeah, and and is. Genesis is is historical narrative, so I don't I don't know that I would find a connection there, but there might be. Yeah, certainly you have like Joseph's unjust suffering, maybe, and Job's suffering. Mm-hmm. Uh, Elizabeth asks, uh, and I think she really wants you to ask answer this one, Jen. Uh, what's one intentional thing you've done with your young children? We are talking ages six, five, three, and thirteen months here, where you really felt you saw fruit from it in later years. I guess this is mostly for Jen, since she's the one with all the kiddos. But would love to hear from anyone on things you feel like you might be getting right with your young kiddos. Thanks, y'all are awesome. I love listening to all of you. Thanks, Elizabeth. Jen, what do you think? Yeah, I think that the, you know, we talk a lot about how in teaching spaces um, for adults that it's so important to keep them dialogic where it's not just a lecture. And I think with parenting, that was a big deal for us is that we wanted a climate of conversation in our home. We wanted it to always be a place where we weren't just telling the kids things or even just embodying things, but that they were things that we were having a conversation about. So, um we started very early with asking questions that would enable them to give a simple response so that they knew that was what we did in our house. When you walk in the door from your little preschool class, I'm going to say, what did you eat for lunch today? Because that's an easy question for you to answer. Uh, Who did you sit next to? And you start with those kinds of questions and they get older, the questions become uh, of a different nature and, you know, more personal and all those kinds of things. But so that the expectation is when we're together, we are having back and forth conversation. It's good. John Paul asks, uh, John Paul, I love that name, Pope John Paul II, J2P2. Can you give some insight on Molinism uh, and how that coincides or goes against the reform position? Thanks. You ready to argue? I'm not a Molinist, JD. Okay. (laughs) But I I can explain Molinism. Would you like to, you can explain it. You need to get those checked regularly because they can be dangerous. I would prefer uh, you to explain it. You, you do know it better than I do. Basically, guys, Molinism comes from Luis de Molina. He's a theologian, okay? And basically, the idea of Molinism is this. It, it, uh, God possesses knowledge not merely of all that is, all that isn't, but all that could be. This is called middle knowledge, okay? Middle knowledge. It's all the maybes and what ifs. And Luis de Molina proposed this idea as a way of helping reconcile free will and God's sovereignty or the will of God and the will of man. I would say this is a tension that doesn't need to be resolved because the tension in scripture isn't between God's will and man's will, but between sin and grace, okay? But that's 
for a different time. But Melina was really concerned about this. And it's, an, it's a work of philosophical theology. He's trying to reconcile two things that seem philosophically opposed. And the way he does this is through middle knowledge and suggesting this, that God um, could see every potential world that could possibly exist and subsequently chose to actualize a world in which there was the maximum amount of human free will and the minimal amount of evil as collateral damage, okay? And he could do this because he doesn't just know the world that is. He doesn't just know the world that isn't. He knows every possible world that could be. And he has chosen to exercise that world, to actualize that world. So that's Luis de Molina. That's Molinism. That's a hatchet job on Molinism, but but I thought you were sympathetic to it, Kyle. I am, I, I, because it is a. Um, I'm sympathetic to it because it is a really good faith attempt to try to reconcile what is a really really tricky question. I do think it's one of those opportunities where there's a lot of ink that's spilled on the will of God and the will of man, whereas the New Testament's tension isn't between God's will and our will, but between our broken condition and God's gracious nature and how those two things can be reconciled. And so it's like, I understand why you want to solve that. And for a lot of my life, I spent a lot of time trying to think through that. And it's a good exercise. I just don't feel like it's the tension that the New Testament is primarily concerned with. So that's it. Um, Okay, Heather ask, when I was a kid growing up in a Baptist church, it was always the pastor who baptized people. I have noticed that occasionally the pastors at other churches in our community will allow others to baptize people. For example, a small group leader, a pastor's wife, father of the child being baptized, etc. I'm just curious when that shift came, does the Bible have any specifics on who can baptize? No, it does not. Would you agree with that? <laughs> Yeah, I would. I, I do think that it's important when we, if most uh, recent Q&A, we also talked about things that are missing in an evangelical ecclesiology. And we talked about how ordinances can be one of those things that are overlooked, whether that's baptism or the Lord's Supper. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I do think that it's important though, that baptism does happen primarily in the context of a local church. Mm-hmm. For example, I wasn't, I was baptized by a nonprofit ministry in the ocean. It's fine. I think God honors that, sees that and is uh, glorified in it. However, we do see that the normative pattern for the early church is to be baptized into the context of a, of a community of believers, but it can be done by anybody. But since it is being done in the community of believers, it should be overseen by the leadership of the church, right. ideally. So you're having pastors and elders, deacons oversee and participate in with the rest of the body, with the rest of the congregation, the Lord's Supper and baptism. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Agreed. Um, one of the things, okay, the, JT, this one's in your wheelhouse, brother. One of the things I appreciate so much about y'all is how unashamedly Trinitarian you are. Thank you, Brian. Thank I love you, that. Brian. <laughs> that would be the name of JT's cover band, Unashamedly Trinitarian. Mm-hmm. Or you know He's what else you could call it? He's already in a cover band. <laughs> you could true. already, it's you true. could also just call it being Christian. Ah, there it is. It seems as if part of this is to view every act of God in the Bible as something in which the whole Trinity is involved. Yes. While one person may be the primary agent, there is still involvement from the other two persons. Amen. So my question along those lines is what was the work of the Holy Spirit at the crucifixion? Mm. Romans 8 talks about the Father giving up the Son. John 10 and 1 John 3 talks about Jesus laying down his life for the glory of the Father. But there seems to be no mention of what the Spirit was doing or how he was acting in the crucifixion. How then do we see the crucifixion as an act of the entire Trinity? 
That's a good question. And just because the Bible doesn't have, we don't have a verse for it, doesn't mean that a person of the Godhead wasn't acting. Because there's, so let's just go back through really quickly. I promise I'm not going to take long. The basic <laughs> grammar of Trinitarianism, one God, three persons, every single act is done by the one God in the three persons. God acts from the Father, through the Son, and by the power of the Holy Spirit. So even if we don't have a verse, we can know that it's the Father who has sent the Son to die on the cross, who does die on the cross in our sa- for our sakes, and he does so in the power of the Holy Spirit. We even see him the night before wrestling with, should I go to the cross or should I not go to the cross? And it is his active obedience in the Spirit that he follows his father's will obediently to the cross. And if we were talking about then how, do, how is the cross and its benefits uh, work out in the life of the believer, it is the Holy Spirit who applies, seals, and assures Christians through his indwelling presence that we receive the benefits of Christ's death and resurrection. It's great. Love it. Yep. Uh, Austin, y'all have alluded to the uniqueness of the preaching event on Sunday mornings, specifically as it relates to complementarianism. What exactly do you mean by that? Why do we believe that the worship service and preaching on Sunday mornings is unique? I'm not going first. <laughs> well, I, I like, mean, Jim has some headlights. No, I'm right not going now. first. JT, start, start us off and I'll come alongside you. Why don't you start us off and come alongside okay, okay, fine. fine. No, I'll go, I'll go, I'll go. Uh, so this is kind of a, it's a fairly reformed position where guys like Calvin, Luther, Zwingli, and others just had a very high view for the preaching moment, not because of the preacher, but because of what God's word is intended to do. Now, that doesn't mean that God does God's word doesn't act powerfully in home groups or in Christian education environments. That's not what we're saying. But we are saying that there is a preaching moment where uh, God's word goes forward from the pulpit, regardless of the medium, uh, a pastor, elder, and it is used by Christ to be his word to bring justification, sanctification, regeneration, the benefits of the gospel to the church. It's how, it's how God feeds his people. Uh, now, he does that primarily through his word wherever it is, but as a Reformed Christian, I have a high view specifically of the preached word. Uh, I think this is what Paul what, uh, Paul's referring to, to Timothy. I think this is one of the primary offices of the elders. But we do want to be careful that we don't want to raise it up so high that nothing else is church. Like I say this regularly from the pulpit, uh, and it's a, it's language that I heard at TBC, that the next generation, for us, for us that's Storyland, for birth through fifth grade, or our base camp and checkpoint kids, high school and middle school, they're not the church of tomorrow, they're the church of today. Not only are we trying to integrate them into the life of the Sunday worship gathering as often as we can, but we're wanting to make sure that they are resourced and discipled through God's word as well. But we do want to clarify, that's not specifically a preaching moment when mm-hmm. our high school team is gathered together and hearing a short devotional talk from God's word. Yep. I, I will say this too, Kyle, if you want to come, or Jen, come alongside. This is not an issue to die on for me. Nope. Nope. It's just not like, that's just the position that I've come to. I wouldn't probably, I'd have conversations with anybody that wants to, but I wouldn't fight with anybody over it. Yeah. And just to make the connection specific, the reason why, so Austin asked about complementarianism. The reason why that is tied is because we do not want to say that all teaching of God's word is restricted to just elders in the life of, a, uh, or what we have termed in a paper that was written qualified men. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, we we don't want to say all teaching is reserved for elders or qualified men, no. but that the uniqueness of the preaching event is reserved for elders and or qualified men. I would say in conjunction with what JT said about the uniqueness of the preaching event, and this is, 
I don't know that we would all be on the same page with this, but this is how we feel about it, which is that it's connection to the Lord's Supper is an important connection of, uh, of that that sacrament being offered is a vital thing that is instructed for the elders to be guarding and fencing in the life of the church. And it is because of that connection of word preached and the word feasted on at the table that I would say that the preaching event is unique. And there should be no other environment in the life of the church where the teaching of God's word is accompanied by the table. Subsequently, I believe that's what preaching is. So cards on the table, if you go to a conference and you hear some pastor get up and speak to mm -hmm. you from the Bible. Mm -hmm. I do not think that's preaching, nor do I think that's a sermon. And I am really uncomfortable. I believe that a preach that preaching is only what happens in a local gathering of God's people in accompaniment with the Lord's Supper. That's what preaching is. And I'm on board with that because, I mean, if you the way that this plays out for me is pretty bad out there in the in the in the twitterverse and everything because if if when tim keller gives a message at tgc he's preaching then what happens when i give a message at a conference all of a sudden i'm preaching and preaching is uh, done by a particular person in a particular context that's what that's what JT and Kyle and I are arguing for. It's not tone of voice. It's not whether you use the Bible or not. It is tied to um, this issue of the, the ordinance. And so uh, this is why it's so easy for people to stir up strife for someone like me, you know, who's out there just trying to teach and do things that are within bounds. Because if they say I'm preaching because I opened the Bible and used a particular tone of voice, then they can say that I'm a heretic. Yeah. But enough about hey. me. And you're not a heretic. Surprise, well, surprise. For this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, how do you regard the LXX or Septuagint in terms of translation accuracy? Is it essentially equivalent to English translations or should we give it extra weight? I don't think any of us are experts on the translation accuracy of the Septuagint. Mm. I mean, I, I, I spent about four years. No, I didn't. I did not spend <laughs> But the yeah. Septu mm -mm. Septuagint is, so if you don't know, Septuagint is the Greek translation of mm -hmm. the Old Testament. There you go. So if you don't know what it is. So say what it's useful for. Tell our listeners what it's useful for. For understanding how uh, the Jewish community of the New Testament had been carrying over the Old Testament right. into the Greek language. Right. right. This would so, have been the, the translation that, that most likely Jesus and his disciples and Paul were familiar with. When, when Paul is quoting from the Old Testament, he's usually quoting from the Septuagint. Yeah. It's used a lot. The Septuagint is used a lot in Pauline studies to help provide context for the way that Hebrew words or right. Hebrew concepts were being translated into the Greek lexicon and kind right. of concept world. And that can be helpful because, for example, a lot of the new perspective on Paul is rooted in uh, trying to understand the way that Paul was using uh, Greek translations of Hebrew concepts to make his case for righteousness, for example, or justification. So anyways, I don't know that we, should you consider it? Yeah, I think you should. Uh, is it inspired? No, it's not. But it is being used by authors who were working underneath the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Great. Is that, is that fair? Kyle, there That's are good. so many questions here. So, so many. Yes, they are. Am I moving too slow? No, I don't know. I just am thinking we're going to have to like blaze a trail. We got, here we go. Here we go. We're still moving fast. Uh, Lindley, uh, since you were fans of the West Wing, I was curious if you've seen the newsroom. JT? Yes, I love it. I actually used some of the clips in the training program. Yeah, mm -hmm. love it. 
Jen? Watched some of it, but it was too many bad words for me. There is a lot I mean, of profanity. Yeah, I hated mm-hmm. it too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I love uh, Sports Night. Have you seen Sports Night? Oh, yes. Very good. Yeah. Um, best books. In, uh, Aaron asked, best books in addition to the Bible for someone who's been a Christian for years, but is new to Reformed theology? Uh, Chosen by God by R.C. Sproul. That's, that's exactly what I was mm-hmm. going to say. Mm-hmm. Chosen by God. That's a great one. Mm-hmm. Emily. I co-lead a young adult Bible study group with my peers and no one teaches. It's just discussion-based. Some weeks people talk very little and it can be kind of painful. Do you have any tips for facilitating deeper and more open discussion at Bible study? Uh, Yeah, you need some people who know you're going to call on them. (laughs) Plants. Yeah, yeah, plants. We call that a plant. Uh, But also I would wonder, I don't, it's hard for me to know what's really going on here. Like, is there, are, are they doing anything before they come? You know, are they reading anything? Are they doing any individual study? Because then you have a basis for discussion when you're gathered. Typically conversation is hardest when they haven't been asked to do anything on their own before they come. Now they may not do anything on their own before they come, but you stand a better shot at getting them to have an actual discussion. If it's built on some, something that they've thought about before they get there versus something they're grappling with in the moment. It's good. Uh, on the same note, Tracy asked, how do you evaluate the effectiveness of women's Bible studies and determine when to make changes when the same format has been in place for 20 plus years, especially when there are those who are resisting change? Uh, Well, again, it depends on exactly what kinds of um, effectiveness issues are happening um, and how you're measuring effectiveness. If you're measuring effectiveness in terms of learning outcomes that are not being achieved, then I don't think you need to do a survey to find out if you need to change your format because there are formats out there that clearly demonstrate learning outcomes being achieved like uh, you see Precept and BSF and CBS and some of these people who have done this, they can do it in their sleep. So you can bring those kinds of structures into the local church in a way that's meaningful in in people's spiritual development. And that may require a format change. Um, But, you know, it's hard for me to know exactly what's in view here just based on the question. But but also I would just point out if something's been in place for 20 plus years and people are bought into it, people love it, uh, like a family member, you don't have to get rid of the old thing to start the new thing. You can start the new thing and, and let it take on steam. That's good. Tracy, this is a shameless plug, but if you're interested in this, we actually run a cohort where we spend time with leaders in churches, help helping them think through how to improve adult education environments mm-hmm. and build them in the life of the church. So mm-hmm. if that's something you're interested in, trainthechurch.com, we have, a new, we have a cohort that starts in the fall. Matt, how do you understand the word or title, Lord or Kyrios in New Testament versus Old Testament? The New Testament, it seems almost always as a title applied to Jesus. In the Old Testament, Lord Kyrios is also used in place of Yahweh. Should we be making some special connection there, i.e. connecting Jesus and Yahweh? How should we understand this Trinitarianly? Also, any thoughts about Yahweh? God's personal name being replaced with Lord and the LXX. Do you think they were correct that we should not say Yahweh? I hope not because I'm saying it a lot right now <laughs> uh, because it is too holy. Because it is too holy. No, okay, let me just say this. No, I do not think that should, revering the name of God doesn't mean not saying the name of God. It means not saying it flippantly. Uh, it means not ascribing to it things that are not true of it. Uh, and not using it as a a shorthand for false representations of God. So I am not inclined to 
inclined to think that we should not be using the word Yahweh. And in the New Testament, it's very significant that this title is being used of Jesus Christ because the New Testament does absolutely want us to see a picture that Yahweh has come in Jesus Christ. That's indisputable. Uh, and uh, so I do think that that Lord title is is very significant in the Old Testament as a shorthand for Jewish reverence of Yahweh. Uh, and in the New Testament as a clear corollary to demonstrate that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Lord. He is the one to whom the Old Testament was pointing to and the greatest expression of all that Yahweh is. Great. Good job, Kyle. Anything else, JT? No, it's good. Jake, is it possible to idolize the Bible? JT, is it possible to idolize the Bible? And, and it, it, I guess it depends on how you're using the word idolize. It's pretty hard to have too high of a view of the Bible. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so if we're saying like, can you have too high of a view of a Bible? Uh, yeah. Uh, or no, no, you can't. No. Can you worship the Bible? Uh, what? <laughs> can you worship the Bible in a way that it becomes God instead of the Lord himself? Yes. And that, I've heard people call that bible all a tree. Um, and and that that is to fail to actually have a high enough view of the Bible. The Bible's goal is to lead you into a relationship with the triune God. The Bible's goal is not to lead you into a relationship with itself. And so the Bible is a function and it is a it is not the end it is the means to the end which is life in the triune god well and if you idolize the bible you actually idolize yourself that's the way all idolatry works Mm. because you make the bible a means to self-elevation instead of a means to um humil to humbling yourself before the lord Stephen says, I'm curious to what your take is on what seems to be a movement towards lessening some of the Old Testament miracles of God. The primary example I can point to is within the translation of the Red Sea as a sea of reeds. Lately, I feel like this has been represented as, yes, God did part a body of water, but it wasn't really the Red Sea, as we know. And while a miracle was something far less impressive, the second example I can think of is the fall of Jericho as simply six-foot mud walls and a small, vulnerable military outpost. You know, here's what's happening, and it's, Stephen, I want to tell you, I, I, I think I know where you're hearing this at, <laughs> because... Uh, I too, uh, I I too uh, watch the memes online, and right now there is a rebirth of all of the most jaded and aged tropes of liberal views of the Bible that are showing up on Instagram and on TikTok. There's people out there that that's that's like their whole platform, and I got to tell you, these things are not new. It's they're not. Liberal scholars, progressive theologians, and Bible scholars, historical critical scholars have been suggesting these kinds of things for a long time, mm-hmm. okay? And so it, they're having a second wind. I don't know why. I think because there's such tired tropes that people who know basically nothing about these things can wheel them out as a way of discrediting the witness of Scripture. The reality is, listen, I wasn't there when God split the Red Sea, but I'll tell you, parting the Red Sea is not the craziest thing that happens in the Bible. <laughs> okay, so, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, if uh, I just got to be honest with you. When people take pot shots like this, they're, they're not good faith interlocutors. They're not good I'm faith. I'm like, how did you get past Genesis 1? Genesis 1-1, one, one. like you're worried about the Red Sea? <laughs> yeah, the Bible, the Bible is telling a story that is irrepressibly... Miraculous. Miraculous. Top to bottom. Uh, So like if somebody wheels this out to you, I'll just tell you this. Old Testament scholars, liberal Old Testament scholars have been making these arguments to basically no avail 
uh, the Christian church is still exploding with belief in supernatural, the supernatural power of God's word across the world. And this is not the craziest thing in the Bible. So Steve, I'm glad you're asking. Don't let the memes get you down. It's all nonsense that has been widely discredited. People can ha- people could say that this is what happened. That is not what the scriptures are telling. That's not the story they're telling. They, they are telling a story in which God parts a Red Sea that is big enough to kill a bunch of Egyptians when it comes back together. Now, if maybe you don't like the miraculous there, maybe you do, but the reality is you can't avoid, that's what the Bible says. It is. Uh, Casey, hoping y'all haven't already recorded this already. No, nope. we, we haven't, been- Casey. Your, your, uh-huh. your hope is fulfilled. You made the time. I just finished JT's book. It was a great work, JT! Exclamation Aww. point. Casey, yeah, there we go. I'm passing it on to my Maybe pastor. My love it. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> I'd love to hear an example of how JT uh, thinks this could work in a small church of around a hundred. Yeah, so that's one thing that I tried to address at the end of the book. One of the main questions I got about the book and that we get about the Village Church Institute, at least when I was there, was, is this scalable? And we really mm-hmm. think that it is. We've seen mm-hmm. this, and Kyle just mentioned this, but we run that training, the church cohort, and we have had churches upwards of 15,000 people uh, who are a part of our cohort. And we've had churches that are in the 100, 200 range. So a lot of this is just applying the questions that I encourage you to ask in the book to your context. We didn't think we built some kind of a silver bullet at TVCI, but rather uh, helped churches ask better questions about what they're doing. And so even a bivocational pastor can be thinking about the, who are the 70 people that I'm called to reach and how am I pouring my life into them? Who are the the four or five people that are really close in my in my circle that I need to be developing as elders or deacons, and then who's the one person that I'm raising up to to replace me? And so any model of a church should think about this. Can I move somebody from being a pagan to a pastor? Can mm-hmm. I move somebody to someone who doesn't know the Lord to somebody who can communicate clearly and do ministry for the Lord? Whether yeah. you're at a church of 15,000 people or 50 people, we've got to answer that question. And I was trying to help us do that in the book. It's good. Uh, okay. Uh, Ashley asks, I think the conversation on Christophany is interesting. Thanks, Ashley. I'm I'm just curious. (laughs) I'm just curious about this. I am not chanting Ashley's name right now. (laughs) (laughs) If what appeared to Abraham or Hagar or in the furnace or whatever was a pre-incarnate Jesus, why is it important to call this the son and not Jesus? JT corrected Jen on this in the Melchizedek episode, and I would love to hear the reasoning. Because JT loves to correct Jen. That's that's true. That is true. I was gonna say it's not true. That's just true. <laughs> but it happens so infrequently. I try to take my opportunities. Mm. Um, yeah, because Jesus is a person uh, who was born in 33 AD. The Son of God is eternal, and so Jesus of Nazareth, as we're talking about the human nature of that person came into being. He, there was a time when he wasn't. This is what we read in the birth narratives in the Gospels. That isn't to say that we can't use eternal language around Jesus. We want to say Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus dies for our sins. Jesus is eternal. But we do want to make sure that we, Jesus of Nazareth came into existence. This is when the Son of God assumes upon himself a human nature. So before that, we're talking about simply the Son of God. Is that good. fair? Yeah, absolutely. What are some good ways to discuss sexual ethics with non-believers? A family member recently left the church because they found popular sexual ethics, LGBTQ+, trans, personal freedom, quote unquote, to be more just and fair than biblical sexual ethics. They did this without personal lifestyle motivation. They're in a happy marriage. Quoting Bible verses doesn't help nonbelievers because they disagree with those verses. What is a good logical way to explain God's plan for sexuality without simply saying, because God said so? 
that doesn't lead to discussion uh, or convince people because they think it's arbitrary and judgmental? This is a really good question. Mm -hmm. I want want to tell you, and I love the way you ask it. I think it's very thoughtfully Mm -hmm. asked and most people. So I would imagine you're actually a really good person to talk through this matter with because of the way that you've asked this question. So just I hope that maybe encourages you a little bit. I have found that the best way to talk about this outside of the Bible is by using the natural law tradition, which is a very robust way of talking about human design that does not rely on the evidences of scripture. Now, I will say this. um, We should not be... uh, bashful, nor should we be uncertain that the evidences of Scripture and the deliverances of Scripture are trustworthy and true. Everything that God says is trustworthy and true, and the full counsel of His Word is trustworthy and true in every regard. But there are times in which you're talking to somebody for whom appealing to Scripture, like you said, is arbitrary because they don't they don't believe in its authority. The natural law tradition is kind of rooted in Roman Catholicism. It's rooted in what we sometimes call evidential or classical approaches to apologetics. And it's a way of reasoning that's informed as much by the laws of logic as it is by the witness of scripture. And so if you were looking, um, uh, the natural law tradition might say something like this. Um, uh, the law of non-contradiction states that something cannot be A and non-A at the very same time. So this would be something that a natural law thinker might suggest could help us with the question of gender identity or gender fluidity, which is, no, you cannot be a man and a woman at the same time. You're in a male body. Even if you experience confusion around that, your body is male. That is what it is. Natural law tradition will also talk about complementarity or anatomical complementarity, not in the same way that we often do uh, more in-house men-women conversations, but on the questions of bodily design, that there is a fittingness to the way that we have that we have been designed, that we have been built. Um, And a lot of this is rooted in Aristotelian philosophy. And I want to actually give you a recommendation on a book, but the guy's name is incredibly hard to say and spell. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you the name of the book, and I hope that maybe you can find it by just searching the name of the book. I'm not going to give you the author's name because it's really, really, really hard uh, to say. So the book is called Written on the Heart, The Case for Natural Law. Hmm. The only thing I, I might add, I agree with everything Kyle said, another place to start the conversation as it relates to natural law would be what what does it mean to be a person? Uh, mm-hmm. That's a, that's where a lot of these conversations actually start philosophically, is most people are automatically adopting very contemporary views on sexuality because they assume a highly Western, white, individualistic and therapeutic understanding of what it means to even be a person, which then forms an understanding of desire and will and affections that is highly contrary to what the Bible actually gives us for what it means to be a person. Like, put it most simply, a Western sexual ethic is typically based upon what can I get? A Christian sexual ethic is based upon what can I give? Mm. In other words, sexuality for Christianity is based upon the other and showing a complete self-giving away to another person where a modern sexual ethic is highly based upon affirmation and therapy of what can I get from this person? And I I think even just trying to think through that lens will help us understand because one of those lenses eventually leads to utter chaos and self-destruction if you're only in the world to get what you can get. Yeah, the only thing I would add, I mean, that's all really good. Um, 
The only thing that I would add is be sure that before you start talking about the idea, make sure that you understand the story that's driving the idea. Mm-hmm. You know, that people don't reach these conclusions in a vacuum. And it's almost, it, I would say not almost always, I would say it is always tied to a person. So I would want to, I would ask the pastoral questions before I would um, get lured into a conversation at the thought level. I would want to know where their heart's at. That's good. Well, that's all of our questions. Hey, thank you. If you're listening to this later uh, in July, you're not a part of our Patreon community. Well, you could have heard this two months earlier. Go to patreon.com slash faith and check out more stuff there. But uh, we love you. We love you. I'm glad you're listening. Um, so, so and, pa- and patrons, hey, thank you so much for your support. Yep. Listeners of Knowing Faith, thank you so much for your support. We look forward to joining with you when we get to Romans uh, coming up in this fall. It's going to be a lot of fun. We'll see you then. Grace and peace.